because my grandfather was a Marine in World War II, he said, Rhonda, there are worse things than dying. There's living with dishonor. And so I said to myself as we're going in, well, at least I'm dying doing something honorable. And then splat. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe, and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits, and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. Rhonda Cornham has had a remarkable career as a medical doctor, army officer, and brigadier general, as an advocate for gender equality and equal opportunities for women, and as someone who brought resilience training and comprehensive soldier fitness into the entire US Army. During the first Gulf War, Rhonda was shot down behind enemy lines while aboard a Black Hawk helicopter. She was taken prisoner of war by the Iraqi Republican Guard, held hostage for eight days. Despite a bullet in her back and multiple injuries, she survived and eventually made it home to her family. Her autobiography, She Went to War, the Rhonda Cornham story, describes her ordeal. Later on, she testified before Congress as an advocate for equality of opportunity for women, as a role model for real resilience. Her many honours include Bronze Star, Distinguished Flying Cross and the Purple Heart. If you're a leader who recognises, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. So I'm delighted today to be joined by Rhonda Cornham. And I was really struggling with how I was going to describe Rhonda. And you could describe Rhonda as a biochemist, someone who's got a PhD in biochemistry and nutrition, a medical doctor, a surgeon, a urologist, a brigadier general in the army, a, a distinguished war veteran with honors including Purple Heart, Bronze Star, Distinguished Service Medal Award, and also a pioneer for resilience training. I mean, they're just some of the ways in which I could describe you, Rhonda. So I want to say, firstly, it's such a great honor to have you on the podcast and for people to hear your story. But can I start by asking you, could you be kind enough to share your story of when you were serving in the Gulf War in 1991, because I think that's really fascinating. Sure. I was a doctor and I was assigned to attack helicopter battalion. We were very successful as part of the coalition to push the Iraqis back out of Kuwait. On the 27th of February, they called for someone to go rescue a guy who'd been shot down. He had a broken leg. So they were looking for me with all my medical equipment and so we had this great plan. We would go out and pick up this guy and splint the leg and get him back. Unfortunately, as we say in the military, with any plan, the enemy gets a vote. So the same guys that shot down his F-16 shot down my helicopter. And I crashed right in the middle of a large Iraqi ammunition and supply depot. So 
a couple hours later, it became clear very quickly that I was a prisoner. But on the other hand, as I was crashing, I really thought I was going to be dead. So Mm. being a prisoner looked like the only good option, which made it much less problematic, I suppose, mentally than it would have been otherwise. Who else was on the helicopter with you? Well, there were there were a lot of there were two pilots, two door gunners, me being the doctor to try to put this guy back together and three pathfinders who are infantry people who are supposed to be securing the site while I did my medical thing. And then we all got him back on the Blackhawk helicopter. Everybody except three of us were killed. So it was a really bad wreck. I was grateful immediately, I suppose, that I was alive. And as I said, that made being a prisoner look a little bit less bad. At the same time, I recognized as I was getting stood up and dragged away that I had two broken arms and I, as it turned out, a an anterior cruciate injury and a gunshot wound to my right shoulder. And once again, you know, because I'm a pretty big believer and you have to find some way to make a good, some find some good news in every bad story. So I was at least grateful that the arms were still attached and that I figured eventually they could probably be fixed. So that's kind of how the that day went and spent a couple of days in prison and then got taken on a bus to Baghdad and spent a couple of days at the military hospital in the prison ward. And eventually, six days later, was traded back with the other 27 prisoners to the Allied forces and got all my repairs done when I got home. And after that, I just continued on, got a little physical therapy and rehab and got the rod put in and out of my arm and got an ACL graft put in my knee and then just went back to work. That's pretty much the story. Did you believe at any stage that you were going to die? I did, but only when I was crashing. I really believed, because I had done a lot of accident investigations by that time, and I knew how fast we were going, and I really thought it was going to be an unsurvivable wreck. And so I said to myself, well, because my grandfather was a Marine in World War II, he said, Rhonda, there are worse things than dying. There's living with dishonor. And so I said to myself as we're going in, well, at least I'm dying doing something honorable. And then... Splat. What a beautiful thing your grandfather taught you. Yeah, no, my grandfather's probably my biggest hero. I mean, they're really powerful words. I mean, I did want to ask you the childhood influences on you, because obviously, Rhonda, you're an extraordinarily resilient person. I mean, you gave the listeners a sort of a bird's eye view of your of your captivity, but I understand that was a difficult time in, in most people's language. I mean, it wasn't just that you were picked up and brought to Baghdad and wrapped in cotton wool and then sent back to America. I mean, I think it was it was more traumatic than that. Well, it certainly was pretty adverse. I think I got a total of one egg and one bowl of gruel for the week I was there. And so I lost an awful lot of weight. They blindfold you everywhere you go. And it's just like you see on TV in a prisoner of war movie. But describing it as traumatic, you know, that's a very subjective word. I would describe it as adverse, perhaps, but I probably wouldn't describe it as traumatic because in hindsight, I don't feel like I was traumatized. And do you feel, Rhonda, that your really fabulous attitude towards resilience and growth and so on, do you think it comes from your childhood? In other words, you you already mentioned your granddad to me. What What about your parents growing up? The grandparents were a great influence, but my father was one of them as well. He said things to me, like from the time I was a little kid, he said things like, Rhonda, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. So Mm -hmm. I had to prioritize what I thought was important. And things like, Rhonda, the fact that you made a mistake does not obligate you to keep making it. So sort of opening the opportunity so that whether it's the wrong job or the wrong school or the wrong 
the wrong friends or decision to take drugs or whatever it is, bad decision someone makes, it doesn't have to be a trajectory forever. You choose to make it a trajectory forever if you do that. I think that's such an important point because, you know, in my work as a doctor, Rhonda, I often find that people define themselves by their past circumstances and aren't able or, or they don't choose to let go of a particular story and they live out their lives in that role. Whereas what you're saying is really, we can really choose to do things differently. Yeah. Well, I, I think I might have to write a book and I think I'm going to say it's a decision. It's not a disease because everybody has that choice and they just don't exercise it. I love that line. It's a decision. It's not a disease that we have the power to choose how to respond in any given situation. That failure is not final and that we can, as you said, kind of reinvent ourselves and, and we can bounce back from, from challenges. Yeah, well, that's the key to life. Absolutely. You stayed in the army then and you went on to really get involved in what I think was a really a brilliant program, the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program, which was about bringing resilience training to American soldiers. Could you tell us about that? Yes, I can. I was... I was by this time, by the time that that started, I was a brigadier general and I was the assistant surgeon general. And this was 2008. And there were just, we had back-to-back rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan and everybody was stressed. Even if they weren't deploying, they were stressed because they were doing all the work that the people who had just left were otherwise doing. And we had a different generation of soldiers, you know, previously, like since Vietnam, you came in the military for education or something, but there weren't any big events happening. And so it was a pretty safe place to be. And then the 2000s, it wasn't that way. And everybody joined. I mean, everybody was a volunteer. And so they were brave and they were loyal and they were patriotic, but they were a product of our current culture, which does not exactly encourage those values that my grandparents and father instilled in me. And so they had all those bravery and patriotism and loyalty and a lot of good qualities, but, but the ability to deal with difficulty and good coping skills and stoicism and resilience perhaps weren't among them. Why do you think that is, Rhonda? Why do you think that culture has changed? I don't know exactly. Certainly I've observed it. We Mm -hmm. have a rather enabling and victim centered, certainly the media. It's always someone else's fault. If you drive down the highways, you'll see billboards looking, you know, advertising lawyers who will help you get money for whatever injury you just sustained, even if it was your own fault. And so I think we just have not been instilling self-sufficiency and self-efficacy and confidence and sense of purpose just culturally. And I think that makes it very difficult to transition to an environment in which your life is on the line every day. So I thought, well, you know, We do have to keep screening and treating everybody, whether they're drug abusers or depressed or anxious or post-traumatically stressed or whatever their problem is. But the majority of people don't have a diagnosis, but they're not maybe as robust as they could be. So I said, why don't we have a program to take good people and make them better? And then they will be more able to resist these other negative influences. And that's what comprehensive soldier fitness really was. It was a way to try to get people with evidence-based, well-founded principles to be a little more emotionally strong and mentally tough. Brilliant. 
building on this idea of what's strong as opposed to what's wrong. Yes, absolutely. Looking at strengths and realistic optimism and I suppose the skills of positive psychology. It's really cognitive behavioral therapy applied preventively instead of after you have a diagnosis. And I think it's really important because the time to learn how to do some of these skills is before you really need them. I mean, I think everybody has probably been trained in CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, but no one would ever suggest that you learn it when somebody has a heart attack in front of you. We teach it so that you can practice it and rehearse it in your mind so that when you really need it, it's right there. We need to do that with a lot of other skills, thinking skills about coping and flexible thinking and, and not when you have the biggest crisis of your life is not the best time to be learning those things. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Rhonda. I think there's never been a greater need for teaching the skills of resilience, teaching the skills of positive psychology, supporting and empowering people to really take ownership of their own health and their own best lives. How successful was the comprehensive soldier fitness training in your opinion to date? Well, I would have to say that there's pretty good evidence that was successful in terms of both improving people on their psychological survey after they had the training, as well as some, you know, like looking at, so if, if we sent a unit that had people trained and we sent a unit that didn't, that those that had the training came back and they had the lower rate of indisciplines as well as substance abuse and mental health diagnoses. So I would say it was pretty successful. I mean, it's not going to take Minnie Mouse and make Rambo. <laughs> I mean, a training program is just like, it's, it's kind of like any public health promotion thing you do. If you apply it universally, then there's a lot of people who won't benefit very much because they're starting off doing well. But it's kind of like, I don't know, did aspirin prevent heart attacks? Yes. But a lot of people wouldn't have had a heart attack anyway. Yes. So it's like any public health thing. It, you're not going to get really dramatic results unless you have a very focused population upon which to practice. Yes. If you apply it as a universal thing, then you'll have an improvement, but it won't be dramatic. But even 2% when you're talking about a million people is a lot of people. Absolutely. And I love this idea how for an individual moving the needle from what have I lost to how can I grow from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. And I'm fascinated by this concept of growth and how you can develop a renewed sense of your personal strengths or a greater appreciation for who you are in the world or a new sense of who you are or a greater sense of spirituality or whatever it is. All these ways in which we can grow from our experiences. I remember Martin Seligman said once, when you can't change the experience, you can change the explanation and learning to see things differently. Rhonda, you mentioned gratitude there a few minutes ago. I mean, it's one of the, the first word I heard when you spoke about the incident in the Gulf War. Is gratitude an important value for you? Gratitude is important. And I think it's, it really changes an entire experience. An example that more people can probably relate to than, than my Gulf War experiences, I one time I was hauling a trailer with horses to the vet and I had a car wreck and I rolled my pickup truck down a hill. And luckily the hitch came off the ball of the truck and the horses and the trailer stayed upright. They didn't roll. It flipped like twice. And I looked out my now very short window and I remember being grateful, A, that the horses hadn't rolled. And so they were probably okay. And then I was grateful 
that I'd had my seatbelt on because I probably would have had my head out the window with this wreck and I would have had my head squashed like a melon. And I was grateful that I hadn't brought the dog with me because he'd have probably gotten thrown out. So those were my first three thoughts. Well, when you approach a problem, and there's no doubt, a wrecked pickup truck and trailer is a problem. It was expensive. It was inconvenient. I had to find somebody to come out and pick up the horses with a new trailer. And so I called that and had them come. I had to find a new car so I could get to work. It was expensive and inconvenient, but it wasn't traumatic. It wasn't horrifying. It was just inconvenient and expensive. That's fascinating. And I get most things that way. Yeah. I can I'm, find something, but it could always have been worse. And here's how it could have been worse. And here's why I'm grateful it wasn't. I think gratitude is such a great habit and a great practice. And I, I really believe it, it is a great way to build resilience, choosing to see things through the lens of abundance and appreciation. You'll be familiar with this term, grateful reframing, you know, choosing yep. to reframe an experience through the lens of, you know, how can you grow? How can you see things differently? What's the best lesson you've ever learned, Rhonda, about yourself? Oh, the very best. I, I have two that were really important to me. Mm -hmm. One, I mean, it might be the most important, was about how to listen to other people and celebrate their good news. And they might have something that they think is a great, is good news, you know, whether it was their grade, their, whether, what college they got into, their new puppy, their new job, whatever it is. What I learned was don't try to one-up them, just celebrate that good news story with them. That's not the time. You may have a good news. I may have had a good news story myself, but that wasn't the time for me to share mine when they're trying to share theirs. That was probably one really good thing I learned. Another really good thing I learned was don't judge anybody else's difficulties by how you think you would react to that one. Because I had a litter of puppies once and many of them died from this horrible viral disease called parvovirus. And that probably had a greater impact, negative impact on my psychological health than anything that's ever happened to me. Whether it was cancer or divorce or my Gulf War experience, I had a harder time dealing with feeling helpless at these puppies dying than I've ever had anything else. And other people might've thought that was not reasonable, but what I learned from that was, I don't care what they think, this is my biggest problem. And so there's other people that have a problem that I might not think would be hard for me and it doesn't matter. What matters is it's hard for them right then. Mm. I think that's so beautifully articulated. I, I think that's one of the real opportunities of empathy to yes. really try and understand somebody else's position to put yourself in their shoes and listen yep. unconditionally because we all see things through our own eyes and we all have our own feelings. And I think it's reassuring to our listeners to learn that you're, you know, you're vulnerable as well, Rhonda, you're, you're a human being and you're not superwoman. <laughs> I'm really you know? not some Amazon out there. No, <laughs> I really, I was really, I was really crushed by this for mm. some weeks. And finally, luckily I got, I got tired of feeling like that. I really, I finally said, I'm going to stop grieving about the five that died and I'm going to start celebrating the three that are still with us. It took me longer to get to that point than it usually does by a long way. Well, I think that's absolutely fine. I mean, that's your lived reality. And I've met many patients over the years who have been really, really attached to their pets and it's a real loss. It's a real bereavement for them when, it, when a pet dies. In the oh, family. it absolutely is. Huge. Much more than I would ever have appreciated from medical school or anything. You just don't get a sense of that. But people are very close to their pets. I mean, I call it vitamin P. 
Uh, yeah. You know, it, it is that real sense of empathy and oxytocin and, and connection and love all bonded in there together. Yep. How do you take care of your own health, Rhonda? I'm very fortunate, I think, in that health comes pretty easily to me. I exercise enough to maintain my body weight, but, you know, I live on a big farm and so it's pretty easy to exercise a lot. And I make choices to walk instead of drive when possible. And I eat, I grow a lot of my own food and I, I don't buy or consume processed foods very often. I mean, I believe what I said, that it's a decision. And so it's a decision what you put in your mouth. It's a decision what you do. And so I choose to eat healthful foods and not smoke and do exercise and go to bed at a reasonable time and get up eight hours later. And I mean, those are choices and that's, those are the ones I make. I think they're all great choices. I mean, that's really the epitome of lifestyle as medicine. And I'm coming back to your great line. It's a decision, not a disease, but all of these small little choices we make each and every day of our lives, they all compound, they all add up to gift us great health. They, which, they all add up to either health or lack of it. And yeah. the problem comes when it's still a choice, but it becomes a habit and you don't recognize it as a choice any longer. Now, if it's a good habit, like eating five servings of vegetables every day, then the fact that that's a habit isn't a problem. If it's a habit of eating five helpings of potato chips every day, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Or smoking. I mean, that's a decision. I mean, nobody makes you get in that pocket and light that thing up, but it's a decision people make every day and keep making. Well, you're paraphrasing that great philosopher Aristotle. He said, we're all creatures of habit. We make our habits ah. and then our habits make us. <laughs> well, he was, a, he was a bright guy. That, he, he was that smart. <laughs> he was a smart fellow. If you were looking back, Rhonda, speaking of philosophers and wisdom, if you were looking back and you were able to talk to your, say, 22-year-old self, what might you tell her now, having lived all of those years since? I'd have told her the same thing I told my 16-year-old self was don't people's expectations limit your expectations of yourself. Beautiful. Really beautiful. You should do what you think is important and don't let people say the word can't to you. You may not be successful, but that's different than you're unable. And it's a sure bet if you don't try, you're unable. Absolutely. I mean, the power of possibility to not be held back by negative influences and to run your own race. If I was to ask you, Rhonda, to, for our listeners, three take-homes for a resilient mind, what would you say? Well, three take-homes for resilience. I would say always reflect before you act. You don't have to ponder forever, but think about what you're about to do and decide if it's helpful. And if it isn't, stop. Don't do it anyway, just once again, because it's a habit or because it's what somebody else would do. I, I'll never forget... I one time as a commander of a hospital and we were deployed and doing night movements and some kid lost his rifle. And I knew what everybody else, every other commander would have done. They would have gotten the whole place up and they would have gone hand in hand through the woods trying to find this thing. And I knew that had never worked. I just knew that's what people would do. And so I said, okay, well, we're just going to get up in the morning when we can see, and then we'll do this exact same thing. And we found it in about 17 minutes. And then my commanding officer called because I informed him this happened, but not until I had found it. And he said, Rhonda, you know that every other commander would have done this other thing. And I said, yes, sir. And the fact that they were going to do something dumb doesn't make me want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I'm a little more uh, results focused than driven to do it just because someone else does it. That once again, you get to self-efficacy, which I think is important. But certainly I think focusing on how you feel about something and realizing that how you feel about it and how you, yeah, your emotions about some event are driven by your beliefs. And you might want to rethink some of those beliefs if you're not very happy. But if you really have something that for which you are, you are angry or you are disappointed or you are embarrassed, then those are negative emotions and they're unpleasant and everybody has them about some things. But what you need to do is take those negative emotions and use them, say, hmm, I don't like feeling like this. So I'm going to do something different so I don't feel like this anymore. So negative emotions, using your negative emotions to drive positive change, I think is a really important thing to do. Fantastic. And would you have a third one? Probably just optimism, just really realistic optimism. I don't know how many people, but I'm sure it's millions of people have had incurable cancer only because they didn't do the screening tests because in their mind, in their pessimistic mind, they said, well, it's not going to work anyway, so I'm not going to do it. Well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you wait until this tumor is just a fungating lesion, it's much less likely to be curable than if you found it when it was, you know, a half a centimeter polyp. So I think maintaining optimism and the recognition that there's always something you can do to improve your situation is key. I mean, I love that term, realistic optimism, which is all about taking action by the power of your efforts, understanding that things can improve. And I think that's... And you you just need to make yourself do it as opposed to just accepting some bad outcome and doing nothing about it. Absolutely. And finally, Rhonda, for you, what's the meaning of life? Well, it's an opportunity. Life is an opportunity to work hard. And I said, everybody's heard of PERMA, right? So positive emotion and, and engagement and, and relationships and meaning and accomplishment. And so everybody wants more of that. And the way to get more of that is to do more. So yes. you'll feel a sense of accomplishment when you do something, it's not a feeling, it's, it's a fact. If you invest more time in relationships with quality people who are also like-minded, you will have quality relationships. If you are working hard to do something, you'll be engaged in it. And, and so for me, life is just an unending opportunity and you should take advantage of it because the goal is to get to the end and look back without regret. So to look back and say, man, I did everything I wanted to do and everything I could do. And, and I would hate, I mean, I remember when I was, when I was a prisoner and you know, there were a few times I thought, well, man, this is not going to go well, maybe. And then I reflected, I said, well, I've really had a great life. I've got a, a lovely husband and a daughter who's doing well in school and is going to be a good citizen. And I've written papers and I've raced my horses and I've shown my dogs and I've done a lot of things. And so, you know, we're all going to die. So I guess I have no regrets. And I was grateful that it didn't happen, that I didn't just, you know, die. But I wasn't afraid because I didn't have regret. And I think living your life of least regret is a good thing to do. Well, Rhonda, keep leading, keep inspiring, keep finding the optimism and opportunities. And (laughs) it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you, sharing some time with you. And I'm sure our listeners will really have found your your insights invaluable. Thanks a million, Rhonda Cornham. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. 
For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com.